welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Alex and Margie, for getting together to be on the podcast this morning. So I appreciate that. And this will be kind of a neat opportunity for me just to kind of get to know you guys better. So I know you from my church, from Rockport. And Hmm. I know just from briefly chatting with you that you have a military background, Alex? Yes, that's correct. And and then I just learned that you have... uh, an acting <laughs> acting background, Margie. Mm-hmm. But um, and you're not from around here, are you? Sort oh. of. Um, well, f- first off, thank you for inviting us to do this. Um, I know we've both been looking forward to it. Um, I grew up uh, kind of in the greater St. Louis area on the Illinois side of the river. Okay. Um, in Monroe County, Illinois, out on a farm out there, and then. Uh, but Margie's not from around here. No, I'm originally from Columbia, South Carolina, which, for reference, is about two hours away from Charleston. Because <laughs> okay. everyone's always like, oh, I've been to South Carolina, I've been to Charleston. I'm like, yep, that's not where I grew up. <laughs> okay. And then, um, did you guys meet when um, you were in the military? We did, yes. Um, so, I was stationed out in at Naval Station Norfolk on a fast attack submarine out there. And she was teaching at a school called Regent University, one town over in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So we met uh, in summer of 2015 while she was teaching there at that school, and I was attached to the boat at Naval Station Norfolk. Okay. Where did you meet at? Church? Uh, not exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we met on eHarmony. eHarmony. Okay. <laughs> Well, cool. It's very, very intentional way to meet. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, and then I know you've led, you know, some at Rockport. So do you have a, a background in that or an interest in um, like kind of leading in church uh, uh, type of things? Um, I certainly don't have a background in it. Um, this okay. is my first stop that I have, have done anything like that. Um, okay. As far as an interest, I, I think so. Yes, I've, I find it to be a interesting, fulfilling, filling sort of thing. And um, I mean, really, I'm just happy to serve in whatever capacity I can, whatever whatever form that takes. Okay. And you enjoy like teaching type of things? I do. Yes. Yeah. I actually my my last stop at the at the Navy was at the the NROTC unit at the University of Missouri, um, and I was the resident submarine officer there, and I taught uh, engineering and weapons courses to the midshipmen. Okay. Ask him about his bonus questions on his tests. They were, my extra credit questions uh, tended to be veer more towards the comedy side than the, uh, <laughs> and the you know, the, the information they were learning in the, in the classroom. But okay. I figured I could get away with it since they were for extra credit. <laughs> right. Um. Any particular ones that uh, are memorable? Um, I don't know. A lot of them had to do with Simpsons references. I think. I don't know. <laughs> do you remember any that I told you, Margie? I don't. Um, and I, I remember mainly that <clears throat> a lot of them were about the Simpsons. I, mean, I think yeah. a couple of them were like random historical submarine or navy facts. Yeah. That, yeah things that you had mentioned in class that. I did sprinkle those in too, yes. Yeah. Things that, you know, might prove mildly useful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything, you know, 
as far as like introduction that you would say just about you guys and your who you are as a person that's that's helpful to, to know or just like um, kind of characteristic of you that's uh, you know pretty much uh, r- really kind of says something about who you are as a person Well, for me, I mean, I suppose there's a lot of words I could use to describe myself, but in in the most fundamental way, I would describe myself as a sinful man who's been redeemed by the mercy of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay. I was going a very different direction with that mentally. (laughs) That was a good answer. (laughs) Pulling the the theology on you there. (laughs) Just go ahead and bring Jesus into it. It's always a good approach. Um, my my knee-jerk answer has to do with things that have been on my mind lately. There's a um, a community theater starting up in um, Jefferson County, up down in Festus, that I'm I'm going to go to auditions for next weekend. Hmm. But uh, I'm very much a theater person, um, but I'm not necessarily your typical theater person. Like someone asked me the other day, oh, you know, you theater people, you're all really outgoing, right? And I'm like, no, most of us, most of us are actually introverts. (laughs) Hmm. Because we, we're attracted to theater because um, it gives us, it it is, initially a lot of us were attracted to theater when we're kids because it it provides a sense of escape. Um, It allows for us to be someone else in an imaginary world and there are a lot of other weird people like us involved in theater. And so it's, it's a very welcoming place. I'm also, unlike a lot of theater people though, I'm not huge into musicals. I like them. Um, I have strong opinions about them. <laughs> um, and and I'm, I was very much a perfectionist when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I'm a reformed perfectionist now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm still, I still have, I think, a strong sense of the importance of excellence in work, insofar mm-hmm. as you are capable of achieving it. Um, you might not think that to look at the state of my office right now, because it's an absolute wreck. <laughs> but that's kind of what came to my mind when you asked the question. <laughs> yeah. So... Me and Susan, we went out of town, my wife, and we went to Quincy, Illinois for a weekend. And they were uh, there was a production there. It was the Neighborhood Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did, um, I forget, the, it's a, a, a book that's pretty popular. Um, the Wind, and, you know, it's got the three witches, Miss, uh, which, the who. And, oh, um, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Madeline Langles. Yeah, that's um, it. A wrinkle in time. There we go. Yeah. So, uh, of course, you know, to do that on stage, you have to be really abstract about it, mm-hmm. you know. But it was kind of cool. Um, it was. It reminded me of like a high school production, only of all ages. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of neat to know that this was just people in their community getting together mm-hmm. to put this on. But we enjoyed mm-hmm. that. Well, just kind of um, starting with, you know, you, you brought up, Christianity and Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, like, how did that get started for you guys? Um, like, just was it always a part of your life, or did there come a time where it? So, just whoever wants to start with that, you know. 
Uh, yeah, I can start. Um, so uh, the short answer is yes, it always was a part of my life. Um, so growing up, my grandfather was a Baptist minister. Uh, my mom was always uh, you know, very ardent believer in, in Jesus, and she raised me and, and taught me about him, and I accepted Christ as, as a very young boy. Um, now at that time, my understanding was pretty much nothing. It was, you know, there's this guy named Jesus who is God, and if I believe in him, then I'll go to heaven, and if I, if I don't, then I'll go to hell. And that was the extent of my understanding of, of it as a little boy. So, of course, you know, I didn't want to go to hell, so, I, you know, of course I want to accept Jesus, so, so I did. Um, you, I've heard, and you, you probably heard as well, a lot of stories of people that were raised in Christian homes and how they, um, you know, they, they say they were going through the motions, and they, you know, just kind of realized later that they weren't really saved, and they came to Christ as you know, in their 20s or their teens or, or what have you. I don't think that was the case with me. I do think that I was saved as a, as a young boy. But, but like I said, uh, you know, my spiritual understanding was um, pretty much non-existent. Uh-huh. As I grew up, it, it certainly, uh, I, I, you know, grew in that and, and had a, a better grasp of um, doctrine and theology and all that sort of thing. However, um, even by the time I, I married Margie in my, mid to late 20s, I guess it was my late 20s when we got married, um, I, would, I would call my theology and, and doctrine to be very underdeveloped. And, um, you know, I, I knew, obviously I knew more than when I was a little boy, but, um, you know, I still, uh, there was a lot of growing that I that I needed to do. And, 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 I, and I say I still need to do it even at this point. But um, so, so that was the case with me at the time we got married. Shortly after we got married, we moved to Columbia, Missouri, because I had orders there to, to the ROTC unit at, at uh, Mizzou. And we started going to a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which is a, a PCA church just outside of town. Uh, and the preacher there, a man named Ryan Speck, um, a very uh, devout man, a, very, a man who was, very, uh, was and is very earnest in terms of his... Uh, desire to follow Christ and to teach Christ and to preach Christ. Um, uh, and he was a man that uh, had a, a very great gift for, for preaching and teaching. And um, him and, and various other people in that church and, and also my wife kind of helped bring me along in terms of learning more about Christ, developing a little bit more in terms of, of you know, how I understood him and, and his work and, and the scriptures. And um, since then, I've just been trying to read my Bible more, learn more about him, um, you know, still, still on that journey of learning more about him and um, trying to follow him. So, why, um, how did you end up choosing a PCA church when your background's kind of more Baptist? Yeah, I mean, we we chose it based on um, Margie and her background being more Presbyterian. Okay, um, I see. So, and I, you know, I was open to pretty much any denomination that didn't, you know, have some kind of you know, what I would have considered to be some heretical red flag or, or something like that. So, and I had spent time in a, in a PCA church briefly as a, as a young boy, so it wasn't totally foreign to me, even though I did have more of a, a Baptist background. Okay. And then now you're back into a Baptist church, but it's kind of, it's a Reformed Baptist church, so there's a lot of similarities to PCA. Yes. Except the, you know, the thing about baptism, that's kind of like one of the main differences, I guess. Huh? Yes. And government's still different, I guess. Definitely, yeah. And and, and really, um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church out in, in Columbia, a very, uh, I'll say, conservative church in terms of their, their theology and their culture so mm-hmm. and, and their doctrine. So from a, from a doctrinal standpoint, um, you know, extremely similar to Rockport, I really, um, 
the, the uh, infant baptism is the only b big thing that I can think of that was a difference in terms of how they operate, in terms of their theology and church government and everything. Mm -hmm. So are you pretty, um, like, uh, really lean strongly toward, like, the Baptist type of baptism doctrine? Or can you see both sides and it's kind of like um, you have to come down on one side or the other? Or, or is it, um, how, how is that issue for you? Uh, so for me personally, I am um, convinced of the, the I'll, I'll call it the scriptural soundness of believer's baptism. Mm -hmm. um, I would, you know, for, you know, based on my reading of the scriptures and, and what I've been taught, I, I can't, you know, see any way that infant baptism is uh, scripturally sound, you know, at least as far as I, my studies of it. But um, I don't, I don't think ill of, of you know, believers that, that practice that. Um, I think that if they've got a, if, if that's their interpretation of the scripture, I, I think it's one of those issues that that good men could could agree to disagree on. So I don't, I have I have strong beliefs on it personally, but I don't think that it's, uh, you know, something that, you know, I would ever have have it out with somebody over. If mm -hmm. that makes sense. Right. Um. All right. Well, Margie, what about yourself? Um. <clears throat> excuse me. I also grew up in a Christian home. My my grandfather was also a Baptist pastor. Okay. <laughs> um, and my grandfather on my, my dad's side, my mom's dad, was a farmer in Ohio. Um, they, they met at Bob Jones University. Um, they were both in choir there, which is it's kind of a funny story. But um, my dad had taken a picture of... <laughs> He had taken a picture of a little girl back home in New England, and I don't know what was going through his head, but he started talking to my mom and one of her friends, and he showed her this picture of a little girl, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to getting home to my little girl, and he had turned, like, his high school ring around so it looked like a wedding band. Dad claims he disabused mom of that story later, but she says he never did, but it's water under the bridge because I got married. Um, anyway, um, they... Despite both of them, my dad grew up Baptist, my mom grew up Methodist, and they both came to believe in Reformed theology um, during and after the time they were at Bob Jones. And um, So how did that happen? Because Bob Jones is not Reformed in their theology. No. Okay. Um, fun tidbit, Bob Jones was founded by a Methodist, but okay. today it is considered... Um, even though they don't take an official denominational stance, they are functionally a Baptist school. Okay. Um, but there was, there was a member of the faculty there, and there still are members of faculty who adhere to Reformed theology. And one of the ones that, whose teaching they sat under, whose teaching they really enjoyed, because he was a, a gifted teacher, um, was Reformed. And so they started going to his church. And... They have gone to Reformed churches ever since then. Um, so I grew up primarily in Presbyterian churches, PCA churches. Uh, well, a PCA church and a uh, free Presbyterian church. Um, when I was, but when I was about four, which is when I prayed the prayer of salvation, we were in a Baptist church. And when I did, my mom gave me Patch the Pirate cassette tapes to listen to when I was a kid, and I played those things over and over and over. And I can't remember which one it is, but on one of them, one of the characters 
um, prays a prayer of salvation. So even at that age, I think I was into memorizing scripts because I memorized that prayer, and my mom saw me practicing it. <laughs> and eventually I called her over, and she knew I was ready to pray it for real. So I did. I distinctly remember that I messed up, but thankfully that did not make me doubt my salvation. <laughs> um, and I, I figured that was, that was it. Um, I, I was a good kid growing up. I'm an only child, so I have both the benefits of being the youngest and some of the drawbacks of being the oldest mixed with the whole factor that you can never blame anything on your brother or sister because if something gets broken, we didn't even have a dog growing up for a long time. So if something broke, it was definitely on me. <laughs> um, so I had all of my parents' attention for better or for worse. Um, but that is part of what contributed to the thing I was talking about earlier, my, my sense of the importance of excellence and my perfectionism. I, I kind of put the pressure on myself that sometimes oldest children do. You know, they, they want to be the perfect child. And I was good at it. I was really good at it. Um, and I kind of, I guess that was enough for a long time. But even as I was growing up, I would see, my mom would get up. She's always been an, a morning person. My dad and I are not. Um, but in the mornings, she would be out on the couch just reading her Bible by the light of a lamp, which, you know, an electric one, not an oil lamp. We aren't that old-fashioned. Um, and I would see that. And if I was sneaking out to the kitchen, like, to get a drink of water or something like that, if I saw that she was sitting on the couch reading her Bible, I would go back to my room because I didn't want her to call me over and say, hey, let me, let me read some scripture to you. <laughs> I'm like, nope, I just want to go back to bed. But in high school, I, w I went to Christian school all the way through, um, homeschooled till about second grade, but after that, Christian school. And I started realizing that there was probably, there should probably be more to my Christianity, uh, my faith. And I didn't like that thought because I was comfortable just being the good kid. That's, that's actually, if you get good at it, it's relatively easy. Um, and it makes your life easy because people look at you and they say you're the good kid and then you get more privileges and, you know, you can wander around the halls and during class hour, maybe without a hall pass because, oh, it's Margie. They, she's not getting in any trouble. Um, but around junior year, I went to a youth group meeting where the youth leader, he said he had been, um, he told a story. He said he and his friends were bumming around an antique mall one rainy day because they had nothing better to do. And they rounded a corner, and all of a sudden, he came face to face with this huge buffalo. And he was terrified because he thought it was going to charge him, which, looking back, that sounds a little ridiculous. It also sounded ridiculous at the time because he's like five foot nothing. So, him saying a buffalo is huge, it may or may not have actually been huge. But anyway, he said, I was terrified at first, but then I realized, oh, this is just a piece of taxidermy. It's just stuffed. There's no life. There's nothing going on here. And he said, a lot of Christians are like that. They can look really real at first glance, but on closer examination, there's no life. 
<laughs> and that that took me down for the count. Like I, God had been wrestling with me up to that point, but at that point he kind of pinned me down and I was like, okay, I get it. I get the message. And I sat in the back of our minivan on the way home because I didn't want my mom to see me crying and I didn't want her to ask questions. And I told God, all right, I get it. There needs to be more. I'll start reading my Bible. I'll start praying. Um, you know, whatever those, those things I have kind of known that I needed to do, but wasn't doing to have an actual relationship as opposed to a checked box with a prayer. So I don't know when I was saved exactly. I don't know if it was when I was four or if it was then, but I do know that I am saved because I've seen God's work in my life in those moments and since then. So people can people can debate on the internet which point I was saved if they want to, but <laughs> the important thing is that I know that I am saved. So um, it's kind of interesting to bringing up perfectionism. and So you're an only child, and then um, Alex, are, where are you on the oldest, youngest? I'm or? the oldest. I have uh, two siblings, uh, a sister and a brother. The brother is the youngest, and then sister's in the middle, and then I'm the oldest. Wow, that's the same as me. There's three of us, and I'm the oldest, mm-hmm. sister, and then brother. So being an oldest child is a little bit similar to only child, I think, because um, like you got that period of your life <clears throat> where it's mainly just you and adults. And I think, and then it's also like, well, you're the the project, the one for the parents to pour themselves into, because there's not like several of you running around, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so, perf- so for you, um, uh, Margie, like. Uh, thinking about life and about a real relationship, um, it sounded like um, for you that meant, well, uh, not just appearances, but like getting kind of serious about like scripture and um, praying and things like that. So you're kind of more genuinely seeking God and is that kind of what you mean? Okay. Yeah. Well, what about um, perfectionism and stuff like that? Like, so you said earlier you're a reformed perfectionist. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, I can see the appeal of that um, because, and it's because, um, well, you talked about how, you know, it, it just helps to be the good kid mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But also, um, I mean, it, um, your life just goes better when you do things well, and, you, and you're into excellence still, it sounds mm-hmm. like. So what does it mean to um, reform from uh, perfectionism? Um, When I said earlier that being a perfectionist is easy, you're right, and you said it better than I did in the sense that it, being the good kid, doing things well, does make your life easier in many ways. People think well of you. You can get away with more. Um, and, you know, people people always say, it's always easier if you do it right the first time, you know, mm-hmm. measure twice, cut once, kind of a principle. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side, of course, of that is what people, I think, think of more when they talk about perfectionism, which is the beating yourself up if it goes wrong or the way it affects your relationships, um, you know, it's, it makes, it can make you really hard to live with because you expect things to be done a certain way Mm -hmm. and you 
you get upset if they aren't done your way. And Alex is probably thinking of my method of loading the dishwasher right now. <laughs> no, I wasn't. But. No, <laughs> that's um, an example. I, <clears throat> I, being a reformed perfectionist, I think means that you, by God's grace, in my case, you're you're working on being willing to let go of things that are not perfect. Um, whether it's um, not being annoyed at your roommates or your spouse for not doing things the way you think they should be done, or whether it's oops, sorry, um, things you do yourself, not not wanting them so much to be perfect that you you are paralyzed by the fear of doing something wrong or you're not willing to just jump in and do something. Like, it was so hard for me when I was learning how to write well to just put ideas on paper and worry about organizing them and cleaning them up later. I would, I would spend five minutes perfecting one sentence before I wrote the next one as opposed to just getting my ideas out and then shaping it up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's by God's grace, you give other people more grace and you accept that God's grace is also sufficient for you, that you don't have to be perfect, um, either, you know, putting on the facade for other people to see, um, or, you know, just, just doing all of the right things so that God is pleased with you. Um, that, that takes work and it's, in recent years I've heard more, more good preaching about how that can be, um, not, not for everybody necessarily, but it can be a form of pride. You know, you want to take part in your own salvation. You want to think that there is something you can bring to the table to give to God. Yeah, or at least you um, kind of uh, feel good about yourself based on what you do, kind of mm-hmm. um, maybe you feel you're kind of measuring perhaps yourself mm-hmm. with others. Because I can relate to mm-hmm. this too. Um, and um, I don't know, like, if it's the same for you being an oldest child or just for whatever reason, Alex. Um, but what, um, but like a kind of a perfectionistic person has high standards for themselves. So it's just natural they put those on others. Mm. So I can see how it's hard to live with someone like that. And, um, and, um, and then you said that there's, um, there's work to do to get away from that. Um, so, um, so what's that work look like? <laughs> Praying. <laughs> um, when I first started teaching, the first thing I ever taught was um, public speaking at a collegiate level. And I had to go back and I had to remember the time when I was not comfortable doing public speaking in order to to teach my students how to get more comfortable with it and how to get better at it. And 
You know, I think that could also play out badly. You know, if you think, oh, well, I just have such a high standard of excellence and I have to teach everybody else how to come up to my standard, that could also be, <laughs> that could also turn out badly. But you have to, in humility, think back to the fact that there was a time when you were not good at everything. That's part of it. And you also have to, in humility, remember that you are still not perfect at everything. Um, I think another part of perfectionism is in relationship to God is that it's, it can also sometimes be an issue of trust. You, you can't believe that there's someone out there that God would love you just as you are without you doing anything. It's like you, you, you want to have a little bit of the sense of security. Like I, there, there's a reason for him to love me. Like I can, I can sort of, yes, I know he saved me as I am and he loves me regardless, but I just, I, I want to make sure that there's at least a little bit of a reason for him to love me because it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard to believe when you think about that sometimes, like when you're having a good day and when you feel like you got things under control, you know, that's fine. Um, you know, okay, okay. I can, I can see why God would love me right now. I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I haven't snapped at anyone lately. I, I tipped really well the last time I went out to eat, but when you're, when you're not having a good time, like when you're struggling, it's you, it's hard to believe that there that God really does still love you. Sometimes, yes, that's what I found. <laughs> right, <clears throat> right. Um, if you're kind of living, you know, up to a certain standard or something, and you feel good about yourself, then you can feel that God feels good about you or, mm-hmm. or something. But you feel like you have to maintain that. Or mm-hmm. I can kind of relate to that. Like if I was to just, um, you know, just, uh, you know, kind of lower my standards or just kind of not care or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it'd be hard to um, feel, um, you know, that God uh, still loved me. But there is something to do with like um, how feeling guilt can kind of maybe affect one's relationship with God or that's... So anyway, the the trouble with perfectionism and stuff like that is that um, it's, it's not all bad. Like you said, you know, there's just these benefits to it mm-hmm. to, um, you know, like uh, doing well at things. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But anyway, um, but you, there's certainly problems with it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, excellence. Uh, perfectionism, I think, is a perversion of excellence. Hmm. Okay. Um, excellence is good. Um, but when you insist on perfection all the time, that, that can become a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, um, so, um, well, before kind of leaving that subject has like, um, is guilt uh, connected to perfectionism, perfectionism, or like, did um, does Jesus's atonement uh, did that does that that play into it, or has that been helpful in considering that and so forth? Yes, um, you. I read something recently that was kind of striking to me um someone of course it was a meme you know the source of 
all truth outside of scriptures and memes. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, someone had written that if if you do your best all of the time, then it's not your best, it's your normal. And I, that was... I don't know that that's the most perfect phrasing of that concept, but it is an interesting concept to me. Like if, if you're constantly doing your best, then that's your normal. Your normal is your best. And that, that's almost a, a contradiction of terms is what they're saying. Um, huh. But you know, the, the phrase I heard more growing up is something like, um, not, not from my parents. My parents didn't put this pressure on me. I put it on myself, really. Um, you know, all, all you have to do is your best. That's all you have to do. But there are days when you know you're not doing your best. And yeah, there is guilt that comes with that because if, if the standard is that the phrase, the phrase that got thrown around Bob Jones, some was, um, you have to be show window material for Christ. Hmm. Wow. They use that material, um, that phrase, huh? Which I understand the concept. Yeah. Right. Of adorning the gospel. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. It, I think it comes from, I think it it comes from, as you said, ad- the idea of adorning the gospel. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think it's the best um, comparison because what you see in a, a show window is perfectly staged, and it's mm-hmm. mannequins. Right. <laughs> Going back to the stuffed buffalo concept, mm-hmm. it's not alive necessarily. Um, and there is this immense pressure to have the show window material be perfect. Right. Um, but so, so there is definitely guilt associated with that. And it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it really shifts your perspective when you realize that the standard for perfection, which God does have, his standard is perfection, but that standard has been satisfied in Christ and nobody else has to fulfill that standard. Nobody can, mm-hmm. and nobody else has to. You don't have to fulfill that standard of perfection. That standard is met once for all, done deal, never has to be done again, can't be undone by anything you do or don't do. And that perfection, the perfection of someone else, is the basis of your acceptance and love with God. That's, that's met. And that's, it's so, it's easy to grasp intellectually. It's difficult to apply to your thinking and to your heart and to your actions, how you live your life. Mm -hmm. Um, It's difficult to feel it emotionally all the time. Like, but when one does, it really is um, a comfort, a bomb. It just makes everything... Uh, good, even if your life's falling apart, if you're right with you and God, I mean, that's all that matters when you really feel it, you know, when it's not just yeah. intellectual words, you know. And I, I loved um, Pastor Scott's breakdown of the word comfort the other day in his sermon. He talked about how, was it Scott who was talking about the yes. word comfort? Okay. I couldn't remember if it was Scott or, a, or another podcast or what, where I'd heard it. But he was talking about how the word comfort comes from um, the Latin words for with and strength, um, con and, I can't remember if forte is the French or the Latin, but 
the idea that Christ's perfection is the only perfection you need, it gives you strength too. It gives you strength and courage to go forth and do, knowing that what you do does not have to be perfect. It it can keep you from the fear of, oh, you know, what I have to offer, it's not going to be good enough. Well, it, it doesn't have to be. Go forth and be strong in the knowledge that that standard has already been met. You don't have to meet it. You adorn the gospel, you do your best to work with excellence, but it's not for the purpose of your salvation or acceptance. It's for the purpose of bringing glory to God, adorning, but the beauty is already enough. The beauty of Christ is already enough. He doesn't need your adornment. It is not required of you in, for salvation. It's, it's, it's a gift of love. Right. Um, okay, so you guys both have grew up in Christianity. Um, sometimes it might feel like a bubble. I'm not sure if it feels like that to you yes. guys or not. <laughs> Where, um, what gives you confidence in the Christian faith as in that it's, you know, that you can look at it objectively if you think you can. Maybe you can't look at, you know, that's not something we can really, I don't know, you know, looking at being able to look at it objectively. But um, what gives you confidence that it's um, true truth and not just your truth because of the circles you've grew up in and stuff like that? Hmm. So... For me, um, I think it's really, I mean, for one, I, I guess for starters, I just take it on faith. Um, but it's, you know, it's a number of things. It's, it's the kind of veracity and um, reliability of the scriptures. Um, again, you know, you take that in part on faith, but I mean, there's lots of evidence that, you know, they're, you know, in terms of the historical documents that they are, they're unequaled in terms of their accuracy and and, and their um, the the evidence that supports them as as being reliable documents. Um, I mean, all all around, and you just look at the natural world all around it, you can see evidence of of, of divine creation. Um, I mean, I don't see how you can. Uh, I mean, even scraping the surface of you know. Physics, chemistry, biology, any anything having to do with the natural world, how you could come to the conclusion that there wasn't some sort of, um, you know, divine creation behind that. Um, Just because of the beauty of it, and the yeah. seemingly designed nature, uh, fashion of it, and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just the beauty of the complexity of it. That it's um, even even you know even life itself. Uh, you know, if you're if you're going down the path of believing that. Um, you know, there's no God, and it was just, you know, a big bang occurred, and, you know, all these different physical processes worked through time, and, and eventually, you know, life was was created and then started evolving and all that. Um, you know, at some point, you have to answer the question of where life came from, well, you know, life in and of itself. It, so if, if you don't believe there's a God, you have to believe that at some point in natural in the natural history of the universe that inanimate material spontaneously, uh, you know, became life, which... You know, sounds ridiculous even as it's coming out of my mouth. So I don't, I don't, from that standpoint, I don't think you can explain the natural world without the existence of a God. And then if you, if you know a God exists, you know, um, you can kind of use that as a jumping off point. And then you look at the, the scriptures, um, 
you know, the, the canon scriptures of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they're, like I said, they're the, all the evidence for their reliability. Um, for me, I'm, I'm kind of put in a position where I can't help but, but believe these things to be true, if, if that makes sense. Okay. Do you have anything that you want to add, Margie? Yeah. Or, or anything from your perspective on that? Um, they're definitely, I mean, growing up in a Christian, a Christian family, um, you know, Alex was homeschooled all the way through high school. Um, I was homeschooled till second grade, went to Christian schools. I, my parents definitely tried to put me in schools that were intellectually challenging for me. Um, And consequently, a lot of those schools, I had teachers who saw, you know, the, the, the questions that come to Christianity and the, what about this? What about that? How can you believe in God even in spite of what you see in the world around you? And I'm so, so I got some of those answers growing up. Um, one thing I, as I've, as I've gotten older and I see um, people I knew, the, the phrase today is deconstructing their faith. Mm-hmm. As I see that happening, one of the things I was thinking about yesterday was that I, I've been a teacher and I'm a firm believer in academic rigor, and I think we've lost that in the education system as a whole, both mm-hmm. Christian and secular. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in modern Christianity... We have become, when we grow up in that bubble, we are content with the fact that someone out there somewhere at some point has answered this question. And we hear the answer maybe once, but it doesn't really stick. And a lot of us are just content to know, oh yeah, someone has thought about that. Someone has an answer for that somewhere. But we don't bother to really dig into the hard questions and to learn the answer for ourselves. So when we're faced with someone who either has never believed or who is deconstructing their faith and they're asking the hard questions, we scramble for answers. And that's something I'm definitely guilty of. Um, something I'm working on. Um, and two, some of the people I've seen who are deconstructing their faith, some of the questions they're asking, I think, Okay, I know you're not the first person to ask that. Um, the The most helpful thing I've I've listened to or read lately was actually "God in the Dock" by C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. It's not one of his more you know. Everyone knows the Chronicles of Narnia. Everyone probably who's grown up in Christian circles has at least heard of Mere Christianity, which in itself is also a good book. Mm-hmm. But "God in the Dock" is a series of essays where Lewis kind of answers some of the questions of, um, well, if God exists, why is this true? Like, how could a good God allow bad things in the world? Mm-hmm. And God in the dock, it's, it's a British phrase. Um, when someone stands trial in the UK, they are in the dock. Hmm. Okay, they're, yeah. they're the person who is on trial. The person on trial is in the dock. Mm-hmm. So God in the dock is, um, the title comes from the idea of us putting God on trial for what he's done mm-hmm. and judging him. Um, but it's... I also believe that truth never fears a challenge. Um, and so while it's, it's, it's sobering and a little bit frightening sometimes to see some of the people I know deconstructing their faith, 
but it is also, I know, good for me to ask those hard questions, to have those hard questions asked of me directly or indirectly through like a Facebook post. Well, how would I answer this? Um, what is the answer to this hard question? Um, and that hasn't, sometimes I don't, I don't find the answer right away. And I think that's okay. It's okay to sometimes sit with the hard questions. It, if it doesn't, if you're asked a hard question and you don't have a ready answer, that doesn't mean the answer doesn't exist. It just might take some time to find it. And that's okay. You know, it doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian if you don't have the answer right away. Uh, if you don't seek it out, that might be an issue. If it's, you know, if it's a legit hard question. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an opportunity to come to a better understanding of God and come to a, a more sound place in your faith. Um, I, I, I've tried once or twice to engage people in debates on the internet. It doesn't usually change anyone's mind. <laughs> um, but to answer those questions for yourself so that if someone does ask you, I think is good, and it's good for your own faith. And when you see people asking those hard questions, it's it lets you, you know, it can it can keep your heart soft and um, help you know how to pray for them. I think At, in the introduction of uh, Timothy Keller's book, um, "Reasons for God" or something like that, mm-hmm. he refers to. Um, like the need for Christians to really engage with their doubts and wrestle with them and not just ignore them because it's kind of like um, like a, a human body, if it never encounters like a foreign germ or bug mm-hmm. or something, whenever if it does get through and hit them, it's going to really take them for a loop, you know, because their mm-hmm. body hasn't uh, built up defenses and so forth. So the same thing. If a person never considers objections and everything, mm-hmm. when one of those does eventually get through, it could just totally flip them, you know, because mm-hmm. they haven't uh, had the experience of um, wrestling with these things, growing in discernment and stuff, and mm-hmm. and realizing that there are these objections that need to be considered mm-hmm. and, and wrestled with. Um, it may have been Chesterton. I read something in an introduction somewhere about... Um, the person, um, ideas are most dangerous to the person who ignores them, to those who um, um, deals with them and learns to handle them. You know, they can swim in them and and handle them well rather than mm-hmm. um, it being dangerous to them, you know. Mm-hmm. But, so um, you guys, the way you guys met is interesting, just real intentional. Have you ever seen the the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, mm-hmm. you know, when he comes to the town and mm-hmm. looking for a bride and, um, and he finally founds her and she says, um, well, I have to do my chores first. <laughs> 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 but, um, so, um, do you guys appreciate the way that it, uh, you know, um, you guys went about it? Like it sound like, it seems like, um, online, like it is very in- intentional. It's like you know what you're wanting to do, and other you're, you know, connecting with other people, um, at church. I think Herman, um, an older man, met his wife something like online, mm-hmm. and when he finally went to go visit her, um, 
he went with a, a ring in his pocket, you know, wow. <laughs> he was prepared. <laughs> and, um, yeah, another guy, um, who's been on the podcast, he's from South Africa. He met, um, an Indian woman online and they conversed for a couple years. And then when they finally got together, they were married by 5 PM that evening. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, we didn't move quite that fast. <laughs> so, um, how, um, so how was it? Is it, do you, is this, uh, what do you guys think about it? This is a pretty good, um, path or, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, say that with my uh, wife sitting next to me. No, it was, uh, no, I, I think it worked out great. Um, for my part, uh, when I was younger, maybe, you know, 22, 23, uh, I kind of swore off on, you know, I'd heard about online dating, but I kind of swore it off and I'm like, Oh, that's just, you know, something that weird, desperate people do. And, you know, I don't, I'm not one of those people that's going to resort to such a strange thing as online dating. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and, you know, what kind of story would I have to tell if I, you know, said that I've met my wife on, on eHarmony or something like that. But, uh, Good one. I, I, uh, you know, I came after I got, you know, a couple of years went by and, um, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe it was just that the pickings were so slim for me. But, um, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, well, you know, the way that you meet somebody, I think, is irrelevant to the actual relationship that you build with them. You know, if it's if it's a meaningful relationship, if you're really connecting on a personal level, if it's, you know, uh, something where you really, uh, you know, you can just kind of see yourself you know, going through life with this person and it's, it's that meaningful of a connection Then it's, you know, whether you met online or you met at church or wherever you met, I mean, I think it's somewhat irrelevant to those more, more important things. So that's why I told myself. And then, um, you know, so signed up for, uh, you know, some different online, uh, dating websites. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> right. Um, what, um, are there any particular life challenges? Like sometimes something just feels unique to a person. Um, I don't know. Maybe for some people it just seems, um, no, I just got the normal type of things everyone else deals with. But I don't know. It could be like you, we may have already brought it up if it's perfectionism dealing with that. Or is there anything else that, you know, you, you feel fine with sharing that's like a, um, a challenge, particularly for you guys, either one of you are? Um, do you have uh, anything you want to, um, um, this is not something that's ongoing right this minute. Um, but I'm a cancer survivor. Okay. Um, I say that not because I want anyone's sympathy. My bout with cancer was pretty much as easy as they come. Honestly, about the only thing easier is uh, Hugh Jackman's recurring skin cancer on his nose where he just goes in and gets it cut off every few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was diagnosed with stage 1C ovarian cancer when I was 20... How old would I have been the year before I met you? I would have... That 27. Twi- yeah, I was, I was 26 when I was diagnosed. I turned 27 in the middle of treatment. Um... But I say I say that because, you know, 
cancer is something that's typically associated with older people, although more people are recognizing that it can hit anyone at any age. It's, it's a cellular mutation. <laughs> you know, there's, unless you smoke a pack a day, there's really nothing you can do to prevent it most of the time. So there's no reason to feel guilty about it. Um, and it really can strike any age. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate based on age. And I say that also because something I never realized until I heard the words come out of the doctor's mouth myself is what a, an emotional weight, how emotionally charged the word cancer is. Hmm. You hear that diagnosis and especially I think it, it's, it's becoming less so maybe because more people talk about it now, but for the generations that came immediately before me, especially my parents, both of my parents lost their mothers to cancer. Um, so for them personally, it was very emotionally charged. But even for, for past generations, cancer treatment has come an awful long way, even in the past 70 years. Um, chemotherapy is only 70 or 80 years old, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's come a long way since, since it started. It might be a little older than that. It might be closer to 100. I can't remember. But um, it's when you hear the word cancer, the first thing that comes to your mind kind of is, oh my goodness, this is, this, is this a death sentence? Is this how I'm going to die? And it's not necessarily. Um, so I say that as a way of encouragement. Um, cancer treatment's getting better all the time. And I say that because statistically speaking, everyone, if you live long enough, you're probably going to get cancer of some form or another. Mm-hmm. So it's, And it is something that affects you for the rest of your life because every time something feels off in your body, one of your first, even if you're you're technically cured, if you're five years out, no sign of cancer, you're not just in remission, they say you're cured. Um, The first time something goes wrong with your body, your first thought is, one of your first five thoughts is going to be, is this cancer? Is it coming back? (laughs) And that gets less the further out you are, but it is still something that lives in the back of your mind. And I can tell the coffee's getting to me. <laughs> I'm talking faster. <laughs> um, I, I say that just as, I say all of that as a form of almost encouragement. You know, if you get cancer, you're not alone. There are a lot of other people out there. Some of them you know about it. Some of them you don't. Some of them it would really surprise you to hear, oh, you had cancer, you have a full head of hair. You're only 30-something. Um, how, how can you have had cancer? Um, you or someone you love is going to hear that diagnosis at some point in your life. There's a lot of hope, medically speaking. Um, and there's also always hope and comfort in Christ. Um, my community of believers, when I was diagnosed, was a huge source of encouragement. Um, <laughs> another friend of mine who was also diagnosed with cancer several years later, she actually passed away from it she did something better with her situation than I did with mine. She, one of the things she wrote once is that sometimes you have to allow people to love you awkwardly because people aren't always going to show you love exactly how you want to be shown love. And that was true sometimes with, um, with cancer. It's one of the best things someone said to me shortly after diagnosis was that don't think about your diagnosis. Don't think about the cancer when you don't have to, because any cancer can become cancer of the mind if you let it, <laughs> because it can take up too much, too much of your headspace. And so it was always hard. Mm. That was really good advice. So it was always hard for me 
when I would be in a group of people and someone would say, oh, how are you doing? And then five minutes later, someone else would walk up and join the group for the first time. And their first question would be, Margie, how are you doing? And then that would just repeat. And I'd be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just stop talking to me about it. Let me be normal. I'm not going through chemo this week. Mm -hmm. Um, But my other friend was right. You, you know, sometimes you have to let people love you a little bit awkwardly Hmm. because it's still love. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, just a random assortment of thoughts about cancer. (laughs) Right. Well, speaking of love, um, you know, so we talked about a little bit about the effect of the atonement and just mm-hmm. feeling that and so forth. So do you guys have, you know, and that is kind of like being willing to accept the love of God and, and, um, and, uh, do you, do you guys have any thoughts about, um, you know, carrying that with you as something that you really feel that even has, um, it seems to me like it kind of has like a effect on our personality and how we love other people too, because um, I think John First John contrasted with fear, you know, perfect love cast out fear or something along those lines, and um, when um, fear kind of causes us to be kind of inward, which is kind of selfish, like we have to take care of ourselves because um, you know we need to. Whereas when we uh, feel God's love and um, feel that's all right between us and him and he's smiling upon us and he's caring for us, then it's like, well, that fear, you know, there's not that fear. And um, it kind of helps us to be more outward, you know, because we're cared for. So with that same love, we can care for others and so forth. But um, for me, it's not always easy just to um, walk with that, atonement feeling or that um you know the the feeling of the gospel and not revert to something else you know fear or whatever is there anything um for you guys like um i don't know like uh, anything you do routines or so forth or um christian practices or maybe something that's not particularly christian but just anything that um has been helpful for you guys and um and just kind of carrying that that with you, feeling God's love and stuff like that. Hmm. I mean, this is uh, you know might be kind of a pat answer, but I think just uh, staying in the scriptures and and trying to to read them uh, on a regular basis has, has helped me with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I know a lot of times, you know, if, if I've uh, you know, if, if, if I do come to a place of doubt, um, a lot of times I'm thinking, oh, you know, what if, you know, if I don't do these things just right in my life, then, you know, my, my life is going to go sideways and it's, it's all on me to, to make sure that my life goes according to the way that I think it should go. And, and that doubt sort of turns me, uh, sort of to a place of, I don't know, fraudulent self-reliance, I guess I could call it. Um, and, and just kind of staying in the scriptures kind of keeps me better grounded in Christ and knowing that, um, you know, all he's, all he's done for the human race in general, but, but also me as, as an individual in a, in a personal way, um, you know, it helps me stay grounded in that and not, and kind of fend off somewhat that, that doubt and, and the result of that doubt of, of kind of turning inward and, and thinking it's all on me to do these certain things or to act a certain way or to, or, or to, to be a certain 
person. Yeah. So do you have a certain way you stay in scriptures? Is it like just a time set aside or is, or meditation or? Um, so I don't have a specific time of day that I, I set aside for it. I, I will typically read them in the evening before I go to bed more often than, than any other time of day. But, um, I have a, a yearly kind of like read the Bible in a year okay. plan that I've been I've been sticking to or trying to stick to. Um, I've gone through it a, a, a couple times already, and I'm, I'm kind of on my third go around now. It, it doesn't always work out that it uh, I get it done in 365 days, but uh, <laughs> just uh, you know, I tell myself to you know just kind of keep your legs moving on this, and you know, don't don't get discouraged if if you you know fall behind, and you know I should be on. You know, I should be reading the material for, you know, March 26th, but, you know, I'm all the way back here on, you know, in February 3rd. You know, I really need to, I better read a bunch today to catch up. I try not to look at it that way and just, you know, okay, you know, I've, you know maybe I'm a little bit behind, but I'm just going to keep reading and keep trying to to digest what, what the Lord is is telling me in, in, in the scripture because, you know, I'll get something new from it every time, every time I go through it, so. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts about that question? I am on year three of my read through the Bible in a year plan. Okay. <laughs> it's oh, taken on me the that same long. Year. Yes, okay. same year. <laughs> I thought you meant you've been doing it three times no. now. <laughs> nope. Okay. So for for anyone out there who's um, in some in that boat, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> um, the I think the plan. I think you and I are still on this, the plan of reading through the Scripture chronologically. Yeah, are you still mm-hmm. on that yes. same plan? Yes. I found that really helpful. Um, reading all of the passages that are about the same thing or that were written at the same time in chronological order, Mm -hmm. especially like Kings and Chronicles, it doesn't feel like you're starting over at the beginning of Israel again. (laughs) Right. So you read all of the the stuff about David together and then you read all, and that's interspersed with his Psalms and then you read all the stuff about Solomon together. So that's been, that's been really helpful to read scripture in the context of scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. Yeah. As far as things day to day that help me remember God's love, this is this is a little kind of a random thing, but whenever something goes wrong in traffic, I remember my mom always used to say afterwards, she would she would say this to herself. She would try to say instead of getting mad at someone, she would say, "At least we didn't have an accident." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was um, that was that was kind of her way to take a breath and decompress mm-hmm. <laughs> from the moment, from someone cutting her off or from someone running a light or whatever it was. But it was also, I think, a way of a small way of giving grace. Um, and that principle can be applied in a, in a lot of different areas. Um, there, when you recognize and express gratitude for the bad things that didn't happen. It turns your focus from something maybe that you didn't like that did happen to gratitude that it wasn't something worse. And that's not, you know, that's not a a solution. Like, um, you know, to say to someone who has stage one C cancer, well, it could be worse, you know, be grateful that you don't have stage four B cancer, which for, does anyone not familiar with cancer staging? Cancer has four stages, and each one usually has three letter breakdowns. So you go one A, one B, one C. Stage four B is the last stage of cancer. There's no stage four C. Hmm. Um, wow. 
So you would never, you would never walk up to someone like me who like was going through stage one C cancer and say, could be worse, could be stage four B pancreatic cancer or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in, in lesser things or in just daily, sometimes it's, it helps if you're in a difficult situation. And I, I was thinking about this recently. Like if you're in a situation where you have a difficult coworker, it's easy to focus on the things about your coworker that annoy you. But if you, if in seeking to show them grace and love, you instead try insofar as you are able um, to thank them for something they, they did well or something that they did that helped you, that can help shift your perspective. Um, something else, um, I find myself praying the Lord's Prayer a lot, but expanding on the ideas therein, not just going through the prayer like, you know, like someone who was just praying the prayer over and over again, like do seven Lord's Prayers, mm-hmm. you know, like Hail Marys or something like that. But when you break down the meaning of each phrase, you know, our Father, He's our Father, He loves us, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come is, is a big encompassing phrase. There's you know, the idea of Christ coming back. There's the idea of Christ saving people. There's also the idea of Christ's kingdom, the sovereignty of God um, ruling in your heart and his kingdom coming in in the form of um, that kingdom come, that will be done. And his will is that we, part of it, one of the many facets of it is how we treat each other. Um, and Christ's ruling and reigning in your own heart increases and one of the the outworkings of it is how it shapes and shifts how you think of and how you treat other people and that's also part of our daily bread is god giving us the grace and the strength to 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 love other people as he loves them to show our love that way that's um that's part of the daily bread it's not just daily bread that we eat it's how it's Christ giving us what we, God giving us what we need every day. And what we need is grace for other people and grace for ourselves to remember that we are loved. Hmm. That's good. Thanks, both you guys. So it is a pat answer, but it's like a really good answer to scripture. It's just a matter of like, um, you know, really engaging with it so it's not just, um, reading a few lines and going away and forgetting and it not mm-hmm. really, which is, you know, something that, uh, it's not always easy for me, you know, just to carry scripture with me and where it's really affecting me. Though I guess if I'm spending some time with it, um, it's affecting me though. I might not <clears throat> realize it the rest of the time, but it's anyway, um, sometimes it does seem like, um, just kind of walking away and it's just like one little part of my day and then there's the rest of my day, you know? Um, so, um, I guess in just kind of thinking about anything else to talk about before just wrapping up, um, I guess has anything just, um, people, events or books or anything, have really made an impact on your life? Did 
to have a gooey moment, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, he... um, You are... You're what a husband's supposed to be. Um, You are probably one of the most generous and kind and forgiving people I've ever known. Um, Which is why I sunk my hooks in and married you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, talking about the idea of, of perfectionism, I... I kind of always thought growing up that I would need someone who would um, keep me in line (laughs) (laughs) and someone who could strong arm me into obedience if necessary, because I'm, I'm also pretty stubborn, (laughs) Uh, but you, your leadership in our marriage is not like that. And yet it is, you don't strong arm me. And I thought that was what I needed, but the Lord knew differently. You, you encourage me. You, even with stuff like going to the gym, um, I've always, you know, this is, I hate to, I really disliked it, the concept of an artificial, like, hey, I'm going to be your accountability partner. That just doesn't work with my personality. But um, you, you lead by example. And just taking taking the gym as an example, you are consistent in taking care of yourself physically, and you invite me to go with you, but it's never a, wife, you really need to get into the gym. <laughs> you really need to get back to the gym. It's never anything like that. Um, you are also very forgiving and very patient with me. Um, you You let things roll off you pretty easily. I know just from some things you've said, I know sometimes you're harder on yourself than I realize. Um, but you, I don't know, you're, you're a really good example and you're a person that's impacted me a lot (laughs) in the past five years. You're going to give me a swell head here. I don't know if these uh, headphones are going to fit after, uh, (laughs) (laughs) they're adjustable, babe. Don't worry. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, after hearing all that, I guess I better say that uh, my wife is a... No, No, stop, really. (laughs) In all all seriousness, I will say, you know, I had talked previously, you know, earlier in the podcast about, um, you know, when I was younger, my, you know, I was was saved, but my my theology and my doctrine and how I thought about God and how I acted were kind of all underdeveloped in a, in a spiritual sense. And I do think marrying Margie was kind of a a turning point in terms of me getting more serious about my faith and, and learning more from scripture and about scripture and, and, um, learning more about who God is and, and what he wants for my life. And, um, so I do think that was a big turning point in, in that. Um, so I, I am, I'm very grateful for her that, that she has had that positive impact in my life. Um, so yeah, that's why I, that's how I'd answer that question. Okay. Well, thanks guys. Um, is there anything that you want to let people know? Like, I don't know if you guys have anything to follow, like a blog or anything, or, or if not, that's fine. But I just, you know, anything or any um, last thoughts that you'd like to bring up or, you know, before we just kind of wrap up. You know, us meeting on eHarmony, um, I, 
Alex was only the second guy that I went on a date with from eHarmony. And I'd only been on eHarmony, I think, less than a month when we got connected. And I absolutely attribute that to the sovereignty of God. I And to the fact that both of our parents had been praying for us for years that God would bring us godly spouses. That was one of the first things your mom said to me when, when I met her. Or when, I guess, maybe not when we met, but like after we had gotten engaged or something like that. She, at some point, she told me that she had been praying for me. And I know my parents had been praying for you. Hmm. And we got, I mean, we got married as is the trend of our generation when we were a little bit older. I was 29. 30. I was 30. I just turned 30. Hmm. And, you know, waiting that long for me, especially growing up in Christian culture, wasn't always easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I went to college ostensibly to get a degree, which was true, and I knew that. And there were there was a situation where I actually decided not to date a guy my freshman year because I was like, I'm here for a degree, and I know I'm going to change, and I don't want to be stuck as freshman me because in any way because I was dating a guy, which there's a lot more that goes into that. It's a, it's a longer story. That's a simplistic version of it. But there was something running in the back of my head like, okay, but I'm also sort of maybe here for my MRS degree because this is the most densely populated Christian dating pool I will ever be in. <laughs> I was like, yeah, there are other fish in the sea, but a lot of the good ones are here. And I didn't, we didn't meet there. We didn't meet in any Christian environment. It was online dating of all things, but that was the Lord bringing us together. It's like, yeah, you can be in the most densely populated Christian dating pool ever, and that may not be where God has your spouse, and that's fine. But it's it's it was hard to wait sometimes, but when the Lord brought him along, it was all of the timing was perfect. And yeah, I know our I know our parents' prayers had a lot to do with that. Um, yeah, I don't have any kind of blog or anything to follow. Um, I will say, uh, I do fall a little bit more on the introverted side of the fence, but, um, you know, I love, I love God's people. And, and if there's any, uh, Rockportians out there listening to this, uh, um, you know, feel free to come up and introduce yourself to me and I'd love to, love to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, so I'll, I'll just uh, throw that out there for sure. anybody that's, that's listening. Same. Yeah. It's going to take me five, five times or so to of you introducing yourself probably for me to remember your name because I'm terrible with names. I'm so sorry. But if, to anyone else who's bad with names, be comforted. We can just wave at each other and say, hey, you with the face. I know you. Don't remember your name, but I know you. How are you doing? Okay. Well, thanks, Margie and Alex. Thank you. Thank you.